Stay connected this winter with this unbeatable deal from BreezeLine. Get reliable, fiber-powered internet for just $19.99 per month with all-in pricing for two years. But that's not all. Your first month is on us. This deal gets better with a free modem and installation along with free Wi-Fi your way whole home coverage. Safeguard your network from cyber threats and keep all your devices connected and secured with this amazing offer. Act now. Terms and conditions apply. Offer expires March 3rd, 2024. Learn more at BreezeLine.com. I'm Brian Boitler, Editor-in-Chief at Crooked Media, and you're listening to Crooked Conversations. For today's episode, I talked to Professor Larry Tribe about impeachment. Larry's the country's preeminent constitutional law scholar and has written a new book called To End a Presidency. If you have strong thoughts about Donald Trump and whether he should be impeached, this book will make you question them. So he's really the perfect person to talk to with the issue of impeachment swirling in the air. I hope you enjoy it. Professor Tribe, thanks for being here, and congratulations on the book. Thanks. I'm delighted to talk to you, Brian. Uh, By way of introduction, you're a professor of constitutional law at Harvard. Uh, Would you mind telling listeners um, who who aren't familiar with your work a little bit about yourself? I hear you've had a few notable students, for instance. Well, I guess many of my closest friends are former students of mine. Some of them you will never have heard of. Others, (laughs) I, I think most of your listeners will know who... Barack Obama uh-huh. is. He was a research assistant of mine and one of the best ever for a couple of years. Uh, John Roberts, the Chief Justice, uh, Elena Kagan, another justice, Adam Schiff, Jamie Ruskin, Barney Frank, any number of people. And uh, of those, who's your favorite and who's your least favorite? You know, I'm not. Gonna, <laughs> I'm not likely to answer that. I, I haven't mentioned any that I didn't like. I can. I can just mention one that. I'm not exactly close to, and that and that is Ted Cruz. He was the student of mine, did very well. Right, right. I mean, uh, say what you will about him. I don't think anyone disputes that he's a, he's a bright lawyer. Yes, he's very smart. And, well, I, that background is just to, you know, key readers into the fact that you've written this book to end a presidency, and this is your wheelhouse. This is exactly who, if, if there was a tribunal to say we need a, a, a scholarly work to be definitive about the topic of impeachment, Larry Tribe is the person. Well, you know, I, I want to say I appreciate that, but I don't want to turn people off by emphasizing only that it's a scholarly work. I mean, the people who have praised it and, and their people across the spectrum have, have expressed some pleasant surprise at the fact that it really is kind of serious, deep scholarship, but it's fun and it's easy to read and it's not, uh, you know, it's not limited only to scholars and lawyers. It's very accessible for ordinary folk. So. I was I was going to give it a full plug at the end and note that it's super okay. it's super accessible for for non lawyers like me. It's also just like a good. It's not just about impeachment. It's history and it's law and it's it's people will come away learning a lot more than they knew going in. And I what I appreciated about it just as a as a as a reader and somebody with strong political opinions is that it really forces you to reevaluate what you thought you knew and whether whether the opinions you came in. To reading the book with were were correct. I can imagine people who really think President Trump should be impeached reading it and having second thoughts after reading it, and people who really strongly don't believe he should be impeached thinking that and actually maybe he should, based on the right. arguments that you put forth. Good. Well, that was the the goal. I, the goal was to sort of shake people up, make them think about something that they thought they knew about, and and really expand people's understanding of what's at stake because. 
a lot of people know less about impeachment than they think they do. Yes, that's true. I, I was one of them. Um, so my sense is you wouldn't have written this book were it not for this widespread sense that impeachment is and and will remain a live question as long as Donald Trump is president. But the, under those circumstances, you wanted to write a book that would outlast this presidency and be a useful reference the next time the country has to get itself up to speed. On, right. On that's the right. I mean, I've been writing and thinking about impeachment, actually, ever since the, the Nixon years. And I've written a lot about it in different contexts, testified about it when Clinton was impeached and then and then acquitted. Um, and so at some point, I might have written this anyway, but I, this was a an opportune moment to, to revisit that because in, impeachment had become sort of almost kind of a permanent campaign. There were moves afoot to impeach Obama and, and you know, just about everybody. And that's new in American history. We we didn't have an, a sort of a serious impeachment dialogue for the early part of our of our history. And now it's it's with us almost all the time. Yeah. Well, so cards on the table for listeners. Do you think Trump deserves to be impeached and removed? I use the word deserves intentionally. And if so, if you were, say, the chairman of the House Judiciary Committee, what would be at the top of the articles of impeachment that you would draw up? Well, without answering the first question, because <laughs> I don't think there is any answer about whether he deserves it, that, that's really kind of not the issue. The issue is, is it a wise thing to do? I mean, he's crossed lots of red lines and tripwires, more than enough justification for impeachment proceedings, but that doesn't make it a good idea. But I guess at the top of my list would be the growing evidence that he acquired his office illegitimately as a result of cooperation with a hostile foreign power, uh, which actually not only tilted the election, but as James Clapper has recently concluded, probably made the decisive difference in putting Trump into office and abusing the electoral system in order to win power uh, is really a good example of what even the framers thought ought to lead to someone's removal. I guess the second cluster of things would be what I would call kleptocracy on steroids. That is, he's basically committed all sorts of abuses and offenses and violations of of norms and of constitutional principles and rules in order to make the White House sort of a profit center for himself. He's violated from the very beginning the now quite well-known, but originally not well-known at all, emoluments clause, which was stuck in the Constitution very deliberately to prevent our presidents from being sort of on the take from foreign powers and therefore beholden to them rather than to the American people. And I think there's been a lot of family corruption along with that. And much of that, depending on exactly how central Trump himself was, what he knew, when he knew it, how involved he was in the violations. He was obviously, he's central to violating the emoluments clause and the anti-corruption principle that it embodies because it's his decision and his alone to hold on to and maintain an ownership interest in the whole Trump enterprise while being president. And when it comes to other aspects of corruption, they may center much more on Jared Kushner or someone else. But that's a cluster of things that I think are clearly examples of what 
count as high crimes and misdemeanors. Then there's a, another big cluster under, I suppose, the general category of obstruction of justice. The people who think that the president simply can't do that, I think, are, are not really channeling the American Constitution, which puts no one above the law. The president has all kinds of powers, like the power to, to fire the FBI director, but it doesn't mean that doing so corruptly in order to protect himself from being discovered with his hand in the cookie jar, as it were, um, doesn't follow that because he has the power to fire that he can do it for any reason. I think the firing of Comey, the pressure on Sessions not to recuse himself, the pressures on Mueller, the threats to fire him, the pressures on Rod Rosenstein, the current invention of this fantastic idea that that the government's investigation were just an instance of what he calls Spygate, uh, the pardoning of Joe Arpaio, uh, both in and of itself and as a signal to people who are involved in the Mueller investigation that he'll somehow have their back and that they should feel free to sort of lie on his behalf. I mean, those are those are all parts of a cluster of what I think are impeachable offenses. The attacks on the First Amendment, uh, both in the form of anti-Muslim policies, attacking the religion clauses of the Constitution, ordering the postmaster general to double Amazon's postal rates uh, as an obvious way of retaliating against its owner, Jeff Bezos, because he also owns not only Amazon, but also owns the Washington Post. Uh, and Trump doesn't like the Washington Post because it's so critical of him. I mean, that clearly is, a, is not just a violation of the First Amendment, but it's an abuse of power of the first order blocking critics from his Twitter account. Uh, as a court recently held, that violates the First Amendment too. But as we'll get into, I guess, in the conversation, the very the fact that somebody is violating the Constitution doesn't in and of itself warrant impeachment. But that's a different subject. And I guess, broadly speaking, I would say that he's guilty of, of a very fundamental abuse in the form of the dereliction of duty. That is, he's shown no interest in the cyber war that our adversaries have been waging against us, both Russia and China. Uh, as long as it doesn't hurt him personally, he's happy to have the United States attacked. I mean, just imagine how we would react if FDR's response to Pearl Harbor was not uh, to, to go to war and defend the country and to identify a day that would live in infamy, but to figure out how he could benefit from some deal with Japan. I mean, we, <laughs> we wouldn't tolerate that. So there are plenty of lines he's crossed that would, in my view, at least theoretically warrant impeachment. But the whole point of the book, as I'm sure you know if you've read it, is that's only the beginning of the inquiry. Somebody may warrant impeachment, may have committed an impeachable high crime or misdemeanor, but we don't as a result, need to simply pull the the wire and say, okay, now we have to impeach him. Because if you impeach him in the House, just to take one example, and are certain that the votes aren't there to convict him in the Senate, because the Senate is still packed with people who will go over the cliff with this guy, um, then you have to ask, are we going to do anything useful other than, you know, get a charge out of, of expressing our our opposition to this fellow. 
and if it's not going to be useful, if it's not going to advance the cause of democracy and the survival of, of our system of government, then maybe it's not a good idea. So that's actually like a, a great place to jump off for, for one thing that I wanted to talk to you about, which is there's one difficulty I had reconciling my own thoughts about Trump with the book came very early. I think it was even in the preface uh, where you write that anybody who favors impeaching a president should be able to explain why removal is permissible, why it's likely to succeed and uh, whether it's worth the price the nation will pay to, to go through the, the, that process. Um, and it's the, that second criterion about whether it's likely to succeed that I, I, I wanted to hear your more thoughts from you on because it makes me think that we have maybe what you might call a Fifth Avenue problem, right? Like Trump famously said he could shoot someone mm-hmm. on Fifth Avenue and not lose any supporters. And, and you know, I think the, the past couple of years has kind of borne out that there's kind of some sick truth to what he said, right? right? And right. and if that's the case, then does it follow from from your you know uh, your framework that some presidents will just effectively be exempt, uh, if not from impeachment, then from removal because they're able to build a kind of cult of personality around themselves, and it'll never be likely to succeed. Well, I certainly hope not. I mean, clearly, despite the metaphor that he could get away with killing someone on Fifth Avenue. I'm still confident, maybe I'm naive, but I'm confident that if he directed the military to shoot some kids who are marching for gun safety and to shoot a rally of women in the Me Too movement, uh, he would be out of there. I mean, I don't care how spineless the Republicans are, there is some stuff that, that even they wouldn't put up with. And in any event, he would be indicted. That is, sure, there's all this guidance in the policies of the Department of Justice that, that a sitting president shouldn't be indicted. But there would be exceptions. You can be sure that if this president were to begin shooting the caravans of immigrants as they come into the country, uh, he, he would be indicted for murder. And he would be convicted. And while that was going on, he would be incapable of performing his duties. And therefore, uh, there's no doubt that the 25th Amendment would get invoked by Pence and by a majority of the uh, of both houses. And, and he would actually be sidelined. I mean, there are still safeguards. We shouldn't exaggerate the degree to which the system has been tested and found wanting. It is, however, true that he's doing things that, although not as extreme as what I've described, are deeply corrosive and destructive. Uh, They're gradually wearing down our defenses. They're gradually making things seem normal that would have seemed enormously abnormal not long ago. Nixon went to great lengths to hide things that this president is willing to do in plain sight, like manipulate federal agencies in order to prevent the discovery of his own wrongs. It seems to me that that kind of gradual wearing down of the, of, of the public's willingness to stand up to a tyrant is the way people achieve tyrannical power. And that really is a source of deep concern. And I don't think there's any magic wand uh, that I know of or that, that I can claim to have discovered that can protect us from that kind of gradual wearing down. And I think, therefore, it's really important that that there be reasoned dialogue about the nature of the president's abuses, 
make sure that people understand why what he's doing is, in fact, a violation of some really basic important norms that go just beyond etiquette or sort of traditional practices. Because there isn't that much discussion at a serious level of why things he's doing are outrageous. I mean, you have a lot of people on, on the left and many mainstream media types saying, how terrible, look what he's done. And they will be talking to one another. And I bet that a huge percentage of the people who are listening will say, hmm, what's so terrible about that? Um, and I think that more needs to be done to explain what's so terrible about that in some instances. The the, the Nixon comparison is is an important one. You know, I think as as I read your book, a subtext of it was that, you know, you have all these people whenever impeachment is in the air who say it's not, you know, it's it's not a legal process. It's a political process Mm -hmm. and and high crimes and misdemeanors or whatever the Congress decides they are. And it's just purely up to, you know, whoever happens to be in power and whatever their whims are. And, And your argument is that's very superficially true and it's not the way it's supposed to be, that the process should actually be much more norm bound and, you know, uh, subject to proper constitutional interpretation than just, you know, whoever the Speaker of the House happens to be and what right. he decides is impeachment worthy. But if you have if you if you want to circumscribe impeachment by those norms and then you have like the closest cases, Nixon, where they drew up articles of impeachment and he was so certain that he was going to be impeached and removed that he just resigned. You look at what was in those articles of impeachment and what you could in theory put in Trump's articles of impeachment and they look pretty similar in some ways. Well, in fact, a lot worse. I mean, yeah. his articles of impeachment, Nixon's, involved principally things related to obstruction of justice and abusing various agencies of the government in order to hide the truth. We know that this president is doing that in plain sight, and people are sort of getting used to it. So it's not hard to draw up the articles. Uh, it, in fact, it's not well, there's so many things to be said that, you know, a little interview won't, won't suffice. That's why I hope people buy the book. But, <laughs> but when Gerald Ford said, you know, we can, we can uh, define anything we want as a high crime and misdemeanor, he was saying something that's true in a kind of trivial and uninteresting sense. No court will prevent the House of Representatives, if it has the votes, from impeaching someone for a bad trade policy, let's say. But these people, even though they're in some instances spineless, do take an oath to the Constitution, and that's why you just don't see impeachments on grounds like that. I mean, there are places, there are countries, Nigeria, Palau, Sierra Leone, Russia, and a few states, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, even my own state of Massachusetts, that say that you can impeach and remove a high government official like the governor for misbehavior or misconduct or maladministration. Well, those terms are so vague and so general that it's only custom and tradition that prevent them from being used every time there's a disagreement in policy. Um, But terms like high crime and misdemeanor as part of a list that begins with treason and bribery, I think no self-respecting congressman, and I realize that there may not be that many of them (laughs) left, but it, it would be really hard for somebody who expects to be reelected or takes his oath at all seriously or her oath at all seriously to say, well, I think Trump has committed a, a high crime and misdemeanor because he pulled out of the Paris Agreement. I mean, that may have been a terrible thing to do. It may have been a terrible thing to pull out of the Trans-Pacific uh, Agreement or 
Some people might think that pulling out of Iran was terrible or that the way he's handled North Korea by appointing Bolton, who quite predictably would have scuttled the, the meeting and made sure it didn't occur, that those were stupid, terrible, m- misguided steps. But you're not going to get even the most rabid Democrat, far-left Democrat, to vote to impeach this guy on that basis. Right. So that really isn't the problem. The problem isn't the completely undisciplined character of the of the concept of high crime and misdemeanor. The problem is once you've crossed that red line, then what do you do? Do you simply say, well, we have to impeach because he's committed a high crime and misdemeanor? Well, in our book, we try to show that, that there is no such obligation. <clears throat> Congress is not violating its duty by saying, Yes, this was a high crime, but it's not a good idea to impeach on this basis. I mean, Senator Byrd made an impassioned speech in the Senate after Clinton was, I think, quite stupidly impeached for his ridiculously unwise and and in some ways abusive behavior with a with a White House intern and having this sex affair with her and then lying under oath about it. The lying under oath, the perjury part, and the getting in the way of the investigation, therefore kind of an obstruction of justice, were arguably impeachable offenses. But the stupidity of impeaching him for them is what led Senator Byrd to say, I think he's committed impeachable offenses, but I think we should not convict. We should basically nullify the mistake the House made by acting on the basis of offenses that don't really threaten the survival of the republic or our system of checks and balances, and that are not in that way fundamental enough to constitute high crimes. Well, they may constitute high crimes, but they're not the kinds of high crimes for which it is wise to remove a president who is otherwise doing a decent job. We'll be back with more of this crooked conversation after this break. Crooked Conversations is brought to you by The Blinkist. If you're like me, the list of books you want to read or those people suggest you read is never-ending and always expanding. You simply don't have time to read them all. Our no. sponsor, we don't have time to read them all. No. No. My, there are a lot of books, they just they exist to be a, um, a place to get my monitor higher. And I look at them and I, <laughs> I think of all the failed books experiences, you know? Hear that, publishers who keep sending us books? Don't stop. <laughs> keep them coming. Um, we got a lot of monitors to stack. <laughs> Our sponsor, Blinkist, has solved your long list of must-reads once and for all. Blinkist is the only app that takes thousands of the best-selling nonfiction books and distills them down to their most impactful elements, so you can read or listen to them in under 15 minutes, all on your phone. With Blinkist, you will expand your knowledge and learn more in just 15 minutes than you can in almost any other way. That's a claim. That's a big claim, Blinkist. <laughs> we can back up that kind of a bet, you know? We can play that kind of poker, you know what I mean? Plus, you can listen anywhere. <laughs> I like to listen to the Blinkist while I'm driving to the office, working out in the morning with my first cup of coffee. Ugh, this is that's a little not specific enough because I just drink the one giant coffee, the kind that would kill a normal person. <laughs> the Blinkist library is massive. It it all includes classics and bestsellers. My personal recommendation is to check out the Bible. <laughs> <laughs> Blinkist is constantly curating adding new titles from best of lists, so you're always getting the most powerful ideas in a made-for-mobile format. Five million people are using Blinkist to expand their minds 15 minutes at a time. 
Get started today. Right now, Blinkist has a special offer just for our audience. Go to Blinkist.com slash Crooked Convos, C-R-O-O-K-E-D-C-O-N-V-O-S, to start your free trial or get three months off your yearly plan when you join today. That's Blinkist, B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, Blinkist.com slash Crooked Convos, to start your free trial or get three months off your yearly plan. Sticking with the Nixon comparison for just one more moment, right? Mm-hmm. Obviously, the House never went through the process because Nixon did their work for them. But I think it's more or less settled consensus, you know, in the political world, in the in the legal world, that what Nixon did, uh, it, you know, if he hadn't resigned, he would have been impeached and that would have been the proper thing for the Congress to do. Right. Right. And now you have Trump and, and the Bill of Particulars against him looks similar. And so in a normative sense, if you're saying that it, what's good for Nixon should be good for Trump then the proper thing to do is to go ahead with impeachment, right? But but because the Congress happens to be controlled by Paul Ryan, uh, a Republican of Trump's own party, right? It's not going to happen. And so I wonder if that incongruity makes you think, I, you know, I know you touched on this a little bit in the book, but whether there should be a little bit more automaticity in the process so that so that these, you know, sort of venal characters don't basically cover for each other. Well, I've certainly thought about and looked at more automatic processes. Argentina, Germany, India, Poland, South Africa say that whenever the president is found to have committed any crime or done anything that's unconstitutional, that should just trigger impeachment immediately and removal. That would eliminate the process of judgment, but it would be stupid. Mm -hmm. I mean, it would not be a good system for us to have because just take, for example, the test, if the president has violated the Constitution, he should be removed. Well, how do you decide whether the president has violated the Constitution? There are some pretty ambiguous things in our Constitution. We leave it up ultimately to the Supreme Court, and sometimes by a five to four vote, they'll say the travel ban either did or didn't violate the Constitution because it was really driven by anti-Muslim animus, or the way the president is treating the DACA recipients either does or doesn't violate the Constitution. But would a court be willing to say the president has violated the Constitution if it thought that automatically would remove him from office? The net result is that courts would lean over backwards to say, oh, you know, this may, might have been an unsound move, but it doesn't violate our Constitution. So the systemic effect of having an automatic process would be quite terrible. Well, but take the, Let me just okay. give you another example. Take the case of crime. I'm virtually certain that throughout his business career, Donald Trump has committed financial crimes of many kinds, including tax evasion and money laundering, and that many of them have not yet hit their sell-by date. The statute of limitations hasn't yet run. Should he be removed because he's a criminal alone? I I mean, I I honestly think that, that if you really think that through, you'll conclude that particularly crimes that people were perfectly aware that he had committed when they voted for him, it would be a way of undoing the results of, of, of an election. Right. Um, so automatic processes don't work. Well, now, can I yeah, tr- sure. try you on this? Because you have me convinced that a, a process that is automatic as to the removal, right? If this happens in a court, then the president is, is out. I think you you have me convinced that that's stupid and it wouldn't work. But if you had a if you had something at a lower level where say 
uh, a proceeding in a court happened or or the Justice Department has started a properly predicated investigation and the president is a subject of it and they they notify the Congress that could in theory automatically trigger something not removal but if if Congress passed a law that obligated it to begin an in- impeachment inquiry on the basis of those kind of developments mm-hmm. well, th- then at least Paul Ryan couldn't short circuit the whole thing by just right. saying we're not well, even we, ha- we have already have that that is there are um, privileged resolutions and an impeachment resolution with a certain number of votes automatically get a vote up or down in the house that's already happened mm-hmm. with trump there there have been privileged resolutions they've been overwhelmingly voted down uh, but that happens and you can also have a censure resolution. I mean, there are ways of condemning the president symbolically mm-hmm. without then going through the national trauma of removing him and, and being left with, with Pence or whatever happens to be whatever happens to be next. But l- let me make no mistake. I do think that when you compare what Trump is doing to what Nixon did, it's not just comparable. What, what Trump is doing is much, much worse. I mean, remember Nixon basically was guilty of being so paranoid that he really wasn't sure that his victory over McGovern would be big enough. So he wanted to have people, you know, break into the DNC offices. It's just like the hacking that's going on Mm -hmm. now. And in fact, Nixon, we still don't know how much personal role he had in the break-in, though we know he orchestrated the cover-up. Well, it's very similar to what's going on now, except in this case, it's not just a bunch of local thugs that are being used to break in. We know that the Trump campaign, at least, cooperated with a bunch of Kremlin thugs to break in using cyber war into the DNC computers and hurt people as a result. People's identities were compromised. They're bringing a lawsuit uh, to recover damages for the for the violation of their privacy. It was work with a foreign government to take over the election. That's even worse than what Nixon did. But in deciding whether as a result what was good for Nixon is good for Trump, you have to take the whole context into account. At the time that Nixon did all that stuff, there were moderate Republicans. It's hard to think of Goldwater as moderate, but he was at that point, who were willing to come to Nixon and say, the jig is up, man, you've got to go. And Nixon was enough, you know, he wasn't a great guy, but he at least had a sense of shame. He didn't want to be put on trial in the Senate. And therefore, even though no one can really be sure that he would have been removed from office, he kind of slunk away uh, Mm -hmm. because he didn't want to be shamed. We now have a president who's shameless, who would enjoy getting in the mud and, and being at the center of an impeachment inquest, especially if he thought the odds were that he would be vindicated, and then he could go around and say, you see, I told you all along, no obstruction, no collusion, and he'd be empowered even more. To move toward impeachment without taking that kind of likely consequence into account would be really to shoot ourselves in the foot as a democracy. We don't, you know, he he certainly deserves it, but the question is, do we deserve to do that to ourselves? Democrats in Congress today, you know, facing this exact conundrum and their their answer seems to be, you know, let's not talk about it. Like as a political matter, they see impeachment as a dead end. So, you know, they don't they don't want it to become a campaign issue that there's, you know, you mentioned the I word in the book. It's 
you know, everywhere in the political discourse today, Democrats are afraid of it. So as a as like a prudential matter, when a president, you know, deserves to be impeached, has impeachable conduct, uh, you know, a, a laundry list of it, but his party remains committed to him. Do you think it's wise for the other party to kind of squelch the topic because they know as a as a practical matter, it won't result in, in any kind of remedy? Uh, or should they try to build the case publicly as a kind of last-ditch hope of moving the needle on public opinion? Well, I I think you surely know the Democratic Party never really has a solid line on any one thing. It's it's really (laughs) always squabbling. It's it's sort of, there are all kinds of jokes about about there never being a position of the Democratic Party. So in a way, it's a very theoretical discussion. I mean, there there are Democrats who are going to talk impeachment no matter what, anyone advises them to do. There are others, like Nancy Pelosi, who will say, no, 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 we're not interested in impeachment. The public is a little savvier than that. I mean, the public surely knows that even if, for strategic reasons, Democrats put impeachment way down at the tail end of a long list of things they might think about, that it's going to be on everybody's mind if the Democrats take over the House of Representatives in November no amount of of pretense is going to lead people to believe that impeachment is not going to be pretty high on the agenda. That doesn't mean that Democrats should campaign on it. I mean, that really is foolish. People want to know what the Democrats, if they win, will try to do for them in terms of health care, jobs, trade policy, a, a number of bread and butter issues. That's what they really want to know. They're, I think, quite satisfied to think that we can chill out a little, wait till Mueller's report comes out, face the possible impeachment proceedings when the time comes and when there are the votes that really might make it a possibility. I I think that pretending it's going to go away is not going to make it go away. And I think there's a big difference between avoiding too much loose talk about impeachment, which I strongly favor avoiding, and avoiding thought and understanding about it. I mean, I realize that there's a certain paradox in saying, don't spend so much time worrying about impeachment and then trying to sell as many copies as I can of a (laughs) a book about impeachment. But I think that, that saying we shouldn't have too much impeachment talk is very different from saying we shouldn't have too much impeachment understanding. There's no such thing as understanding too much about it. We need to understand it so that it doesn't sneak up on us and, and so we don't, you know, kind of fling it around without without a sense of what its pros and cons are. I'm I'm glad you I'm glad you said that because I your your former student, Adam Schiff, he wrote he wrote an opinion piece about mm-hmm. this. He he was trying to I think he was trying to make the point you just made. Let's not have loose talk about impeachment, right? And, right. and he, by sort of by way of analogy, Congress impeached a, a judge recently, that, and he was he was a part of that process. Right. And it, he he argued that you know it, it's only when all these criteria can be met, and you and you essentially know that you can go to the, to, to your constituents and say this had to be done, and it was done properly, right. right? And that they'll believe you. That that's when that's when you move ahead with impeachment and. But at, at, at the way he made the case made me think that that's in, in the current environment where you have one party that is, you know, kind of enthralled to this 
propaganda apparatus uh, that the conservative movement set up and enthralled to this president who is kind of works hand in glove with the propaganda apparatus, right? That you'll never get there. And the argument sort of short circuits itself. It says, don't talk about it. You know, impeachment is something we shouldn't talk loosely about until we're ready to make the case to the public. But the, but the, the public has been like that situation has been sort of gamed by the, um, by the president's party in such a way that you'll, you'll, you know, no matter how bad the conduct gets short of, you know, shooting protesters, you'll never get there. Um, and so, and so how do they, is there a way to thread that? Well, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I don't think it's entirely a self-contradiction. I mean, you notice that the example that Adam Schiff gave of a judge who was properly impeached was somebody who was impeached for conduct, misconduct, bribery, in fact, that took place before he became a federal judge, when he was in the state, a state court judge. Mm-hmm. And Schiff is pointing out that similarly, if Trump were to be impeached and removed for stealing the election in collaboration or conspiracy or cooperation or collusion with the Russians, which would be an example of something that certainly would warrant removal and might in fact generate removal, that the fact that that misconduct occurred before he became president rather than after, as with the obstruction of justice, wouldn't prevent us and shouldn't prevent us from saying that he needs to be removed if he obtained office illegitimately. And I think what the kind of the subtext of Adam Schiff's recent piece on this topic is that we shouldn't be talking about impeachment until we know more. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, if what's revealed is sufficiently shocking, and it would have to be a lot more shocking in the case of a president than in the case of a single federal district judge. Uh, then we really may need to remove him. In other words, Schiff is not taking impeachment off the table. He's saying if if what is revealed is enough to convince your constituents that he absolutely can't serve as president for reasons that we didn't even know when he was running. I mean, we knew a lot of stuff, but we certainly didn't know at the time he was running because the Justice Department that he ironically claims was out to get him was in fact protecting him by not telling us what it knew. But in that event, his removal might become inevitable. We'll be back with more of our conversation with Professor Lawrence Tribe after this break. Crude Conversation is brought to you by Quip. Oh, interesting. When you walk down the toothbrush aisle at the store, it doesn't take long to realize that there are lots of options, and many of them are gimmicks. The truth is you really just need something that guides the simple habits most of us get wrong when brushing our teeth, and Quip knows that. For starters, Quip is an electric toothbrush that's a fraction of the cost of bulkier brushes while still packing just the right amount of vibrations to help clean your teeth. Quip's built-in timer helps you clean for the dentist-recommended two minutes while guiding pulses that remind you when to switch sides. It's a weird uh, intonation you're using there. You're noticing something that's not real uh, <laughs> because of something weird about you. Next, Quip subscription plans are for your health, not just convenience. They deliver new brush heads on a dentist-recommended schedule every three months for just $5, including free shipping worldwide. Quip also comes with a mount that suctions right to your mirror and unsticks to use as a cover for hygienic travel whenever you take your teeth. And finally, everyone loves Quip. They're on, They're on Oprah's O-list. O-list, named one of Time's Best Inventions and is the first subscription electric toothbrush accepted by the American Dental Association. Plus, they're backed by a network of over 20,000 dentists and hygienists and hundreds of thousands of happy brushers use Quip every day. Quip starts at just $25 
And if you go to getquip.com, G-E-T-Q-U-I-P.com slash Cricket Convos right now, you'll get your first refill pack free with a Quip electric toothbrush. That's your first refill pack free. Getquip.com slash Cricket Convos, G-E-T-Q-U-I-P.com slash Cricket Convos. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. So one thought I had about Trump's particular fate, you say inevitable. It's easy to imagine Democrats taking the House in the, in November while Republicans keep the Senate. And then from there, we learn things that you would think would make an impeachment process inevitable. Right. Suppose we learn very specific things at the level of sort of conversations between Trump and Putin, which really explain in great detail why Trump has been so beholden to Putin with respect to sanctions and how he expected Putin to help him win the election. And if I think there are even people who are willing to sort of look the other way when Trump lies on a daily basis, who at that point would wake up and say, oh, my God, we don't really want Vladimir Putin to pick our president. Okay, so 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 we're at that point. It's it's after November. Repu- uh, De- Democrats have taken the House, but Republicans have kept the Senate, and and we learned that. You you uh, you suggested a couple points in the book that the transition from the House impeachment process to the Senate trial is automatic. But when I go and I look at the Constitution, I don't read it as saying that the Senate is obligated to hold a trial. I know that the Senate rules use the word "shall" a lot as the Senate kind of committing itself to having the trial. But those are just the rules that the Senate made for itself. And, and, the, and the majority leader today, Mitch McConnell, is a serial violator of norms. So what happens if d- Democrats have the House? They learn about conduct that, that you know, really constitutes an emergency. Impeachment must happen. They ho- hold the impeachment and Mitch McConnell says, sorry, nope, no trial. We're, we're not even going to bother it. We, like he, he does what he did with Merrick Garland, but for impeachment. Well, it's a very good question. I, I find that. Not so easy to imagine, but not impossible to imagine. Remember that the House and the Senate are, are not on different planets. They, they communicate with one another. If it really was the case that Mitch McConnell was committed to not even going through the form of a trial, of a grand inquest, as Rehnquist called it, a grand inquest of the nation, no matter what is discovered and no matter what articles of impeachment are voted by the House, um, that would be a really horrible crisis, and I don't think that the House would let the Senate get away with it. I, I haven't thought through all of the details of what pressures might be brought to bear on McConnell, and it's a very interesting question. It's a good hypothetical for maybe some future law exam, but I don't <laughs> think it's going to happen. Um, so I, I, I want to close with a, a couple more general questions. Mm-hmm. Uh, one, one, one is a interpretation question, and... and you you mentioned emoluments, and I know that you're involved with the emoluments litigation right. that's underway right now. And in my mind, the concept of emoluments is very linked to the term bribery that's enumerated in the impeachment clause. That right. why do you, why but it do you, doesn't it doesn't have to be bribery to violate the spirit of the anti-corruption provision? That is the whole point of the emoluments clause was that 
you don't have to actually be able to prove bribery in order to say that the president is putting himself in a situation where the public just can't trust that what he's doing is driven by a concern for the national interest than for his own pocketbook. And whenever that's the case, there's a violation of the Emoluments Clause. Congress could directly forbid the president from continuing to have an ownership interest in many of his properties, and it could use the Emoluments Clause as its basis for taking a legislative step of that kind. Uh, And we don't yet know how the Supreme Court will rule on the Emoluments case, but I do think that If you look at what this president has done with respect to Russia, with respect to ZTE and China, with respect to Qatar and the the blockade, it looks like he's not just receiving benefits from foreign governments in violation of that clause, but he's actually giving them favorable treatment in our policy in order to keep on the good side of these governments. So I think he's guilty of bribery, not just high crimes and misdemeanors. Not necessarily bribery the way it's defined in the U.S. Federal Criminal Code. The Supreme Court has given it a very narrow definition, but it's one thing that almost every, really I'd say every serious commentator student uh, of the impeachment power recognizes is that something does not have to be technically a crime uh, in order to be a high crime and misdemeanor. There are all kinds of things that would be high crimes and misdemeanors, like, for example, pardoning, sort of announcing in advance, I will pardon anyone who who beats up one of my opponents and is charged with a crime. Well, that would be clearly an impeachable offense of the worst type, but it wouldn't be a crime. Right. I linked the the concept of emoluments with the concept of bribery, which, as you say, is not – in the way it's laid out in the Constitution is not connected to any specific crime, right? And I, the reason I, I, I wanted to make that linkage is that with this president who has secret debts and completely opaque finances, and you right. can imagine, you know, that that seems to be being normalized with Trump. If he if he isn't impeached, then from here here on out, you know, it'll people who have opaque finances will think it's open season. They can run for president. Nobody's going to make them uh, put their cards on the table. So. It, is there something inherent in the idea that the founders believed bribery was an impeachable offense that suggests they also believed a president's finances had to be somewhat transparent, right? Like, what does it mean for bribery to be an impeachable offense or for uh, the emoluments clause to prohibit uh, foreign governments from giving the president gifts if a president can simply just conceal his contacts and his sources of information? Right, and conceal the gifts he's getting. Right. The, the way... The way um, in in the sort of early history of England, there was this concern about Charles being bribed under the table by Louis of France, and and uh, I do think the framers anticipated and took for granted that there would be greater transparency, but that can be demanded by legislative action. I mean, I'm helping a number of states pass laws and defend them in court that would require presidential candidates to reveal a number of years of tax returns before they can run for president. That might or might not withstand constitutional challenge. I think Congress has a lot that it could do there. And I do think that one of the fallouts of the Trump presidency is going to be a much more 
stringent demand that we know more about the finances of anyone who runs for president. I don't think people will get away with that again. And I think that's true even if Trump serves out his term, uh, because I think that the Mueller report will end up leaking even if it's not officially released, which I think it should be and probably will be. And I think that the net result will be we will see that financial information that Trump wanted to hide from us, mostly because I think not only he wanted to hide, be able to hide the, the sneaky financial transactions, he wanted to be able to hide that he wasn't as rich as he was claiming to be. <laughs> All right. Uh, Larry Tribe, the book is called To End a Presidency. Again, congratulations on it. It's a great read. Everybody should buy it. Um, and thank you for taking the time to be with us on Crooked Conversations. Thank you, Brian. Really enjoyed it. Thanks for listening. Check back next week for another great conversation from the Crooked Media team. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.